I'm Rob. And I'm Nate. And welcome back to Rob and Nate Recorded a Podcast and week three of Alfred Hitchcock Month. Yay! And for week three of Alfred Hitchcock Month, we are watching The Great Man's penultimate film, his second to last feature, 1972's Frenzy, his return to filmmaking in England for the first time since The Man Who Knew Too Much. In I have a question for you about that. Mm-hmm. So this was filmed at Pinewood Studios in London, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. But it's a Universal film. Yeah, Universal was the distributor. Oh, okay. Universal was Hitchcock's home from, I want to say, Vertigo in the late 50s on into this. And I can't remember if his last film was distributed by them. It probably was. But it became this studio that I guess was the best fit for him. He'd had problems with the yeah, David I, I guess Selznick I think of and him some. Primarily as like a production studio, not mm. just distribution. So, yeah. Yeah. So the story that comes to mind about this film, and I wish I could remember who precisely this was. I, w- I want to say it was Peter Bogdanovich. So he goes with the Hitchcocks to the premiere of this this film, uh, which I think was in London. Film rolls, finishes. Bogdanovich turns to the Hitchcocks, to Alfred and Alma, and says, that is the film of a young man. And they both start to cry. Because this film is absolutely a Hitchcock film, and it's absolutely a contemporary film of the early 70s. It's both things at equal levels. And it he's not phoning this thing in. This thing is visually interesting. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's tight storytelling. It's got great actors. It's got a lot of little side pieces of business. I think the side characters make this movie as good as the main narrative is. They just add this extra very English flavor to the proceedings. And this is really slash classic. And he's going out on a pretty strong note. I really think this movie works. Oh yeah. Yeah. It works very well. And one of the things I love about Alfred Hitchcock films is he... Clearly feels no need to force the tension. Mm. A scene that emphasizes this is at the the Blaney Bureau. Yeah. Mm. When the secretary comes back and finds Mrs. Blaney deceased, you know, the camera just sits there on that doorway at the bottom yeah. of the stairs. And it just waits, and you're just waiting for it. And they don't give it an implausibly short period of time. That yeah. camera sits there for like 20 seconds It plus. sits there for as long a time, probably around 30 seconds. Yeah. It seems a feasible amount of time for her to walk upstairs, go into the office, go into her boss's office, and notice that she's dead inside. Yeah. and But just those types of subtle things and the way that he uses those types of scenes and that camera just holding in that one spot well, the camera, to build tension. The camera for this film starts with that great long shot of London. Yeah, And then it closes in on that politician who's given a speech about their new plan to reclamate the water at, at that, that area. The river, and yeah. The river, and that's when the first body, the first body we see, washes up. It's immediately recognized as one of the necktie murders. So this has been going on for a while. Some creep in London. I believe they said that's the third victim. The third. So we got a guy in London who's going around raping women and, and strangling them with neckties. And that's who this film is, is built around, the mystery of who is this guy and how do we bring him to justice. And there's a wonderful, talk about long takes, there's the long misdirect early on when we're introduced to uh, Richard Blarney. And he's presented in such a way 
that you think he may be the necktie strangler. At what point did you realize he wasn't, or did you always think that was a misdirect? No, I didn't realize it until, I guess it's about, it's a little past a third of the way through the film, when there's that scene with Robert Rusk. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But at first, like, I mean, certainly at the beginning, I was like, okay, they're setting this guy up to be the bad guy. But then it seemed too easy. Mm. So I and started they, to question it. They always kept it just ambiguous enough. It yeah. was a lot of implied things, but nothing definitive. Well, but if you are familiar with Alfred Hitchcock's work, that was too easy. Yeah. So, yeah, that that caught on. I caught onto that relatively quickly. I was, you know, I was like, okay, they're making him look. It looked like it's this guy, but it'd be too early to make it this guy this early in the film. So Blaney's a troubled guy. He's the kind of guy you might expect to do something like this. He was apparently quite successful in the Royal Air Force. And then he just couldn't make a go of it afterwards. And when he's having dinner with his ex-wife, he talks a little bit about how, what control did I have over them putting the highway away from our, you know, our little, sound like it was a hotel or something like that. And and then he he had this business that basically was sold out from under him because of different government decisions, and he became difficult. He's kind of a difficult guy. Yeah. And his marriage fell apart. His wife got to be quite successful at a matchmaking agency, which is ironic given that they ended up divorcing. And she was the one with the money. And he was apparently living in the bar that he gets fired from at the beginning of the movie because he didn't have a place to stay. Yeah. Because he ends up sleeping that first night at the Salvation Army shelter, which becomes an important plot point because... There's that guy that tries to pickpocket him with this money that he didn't realize he had because his ex-wife put it in his pocket when uh, they went out to dinner together because she she still has feelings for him, affectionate uh, to him. But, of course, he is dispatched by the erstwhile friend. Robert Rusk, played by Barry Foster. Barry Foster, yeah. He's good. So when did you first see this film? Oh, I first saw this film... In the early 2000s, I think I've seen this probably three or four times. It's, I'd say, been more than a decade since I've seen it. Cause I did not remember the last act of this film, which is a solid last act. Yeah. I'm like, how does this end again? What do you recall from the first time you saw it? Well, one of the things I recall from it is, frankly, the nudity. Yeah. This is the first and I think the only Hitchcock film to include nudity. And a, a film that it reminds me of is Billy Wilder's Avante, which, which also has some nude scenes. And these are both classic Hollywood directors that were trying to be with the time, and they had a certain amount of freedom. And as we discussed in our episode of Avante, that turned me off with that film the first time I saw it. But on later viewings, I'm like, okay, I get where he, I get what he was doing. I don't think it was too forced. Did you think that it was forced in this film, or did you think that it worked? I feel like it could have gone either way. Mm-hmm. Did it add anything to this film? Not necessarily. Could the film have been made without it? Sure. I mean, I don't object to... I guess we're diving into something a little bit different (laughs) in taste, but I I don't object to that type of stuff being in film per se, Mm -hmm. but it is basically gratuitous in this one. But I think that's also part of his uh, Hitchcock trying to be contemporary with this and trying to be as, as, as of the time as he could be. Yeah. So this is Alfred Hitchcock, Sir Alfred Hitchcock's, only movie to carry an 18 certificate in the UK or receive an X rating after the X age restriction was moved from 16 to 17 in 1971. Yeah. And it is, I believe, the only R-rated film that Hitchcock made in America, except for, ironically, Psycho, 
which many years later was inexplicably rated R. Yeah. The rating systems from back then, like, the yeah, the rating system did some injustices for a little while there. If anyone's ever seen National Lampoon's European Vacation, how that ever got by with the, with a PG-13 yeah. rating when films like this are rated R, it's baffling. Yeah. Yeah. Should we talk about the cast? Absolutely. John Finch is our lead. Nobody in this film, with, with probably two exceptions, did I really know from other things. And I think that helped the film. I liked not knowing these people because you didn't go in with a lot of preconceptions about who they are. The I recognize several of them, but I don't know that it, you know, contem- you know, contemporaneously, I don't think any of these guys would have been super obvious or super yeah. well-known. Mm-hmm. Mostly the main one I noticed or I recognized was Alec, Alec McCowan, who plays Chief Inspector Tim Oxford, mm-hmm. who had evidently quite the long career. His last title was in 2002, The Gangs of New York. But he worked from clear... I didn't go all the way to the back to the very beginning of his history, but he was making films back in the '60s and yeah. made films all the way through 2002. Yeah, Barry Foster is quite effective as Robert Rusk, a guy who early on you like. Yeah, uh, he seems or like at least you want to like. You want to like him, but obviously, you know he's not what he appears to be on the surface. He's he's a produce vendor. He's a, a good friend of uh, Richard. But he lives in this kind of tiny little apartment above his produce shop. But he dresses very nicely. So he has a presentation to the world that's different than the way he lives. And I like the subtlety of that. And that you know they, they bring us to his apartment, I think, to kind of press that home later yeah. on. Barbara Lee Hunt plays the ex-wife of our lead, uh, Brenda Blaney. She's the only major cast member still alive. She's 85 years old. Anna Massey is uh, one of the probably two names in this film that I know from other things. Uh, she's the son of the Canadian-American actor Raymond Massey. She is in another London-set serial killer film, 1960's Peeping Tom, directed by Michael Powell, which is a great movie that may end up in our Halloween month at some point uh, yeah. down the road. Before mentioned, Alec McEwen. We've got uh, Vivian Merchant, Billy Whitlaw. And Clive Swift, who was on Mr. Bouquet, Mr. Bucket or Mr. Bouquet in the 1990s Britcom, Keeping Up Appearances. He's also somebody who had a very long acting career. He was acting through 2017, and then he died in 2019. And he plays a friend of our lead who happens upon him in a park and, and puts him up for a while. And he comes across as the most English man you've ever seen. Just that look and that bearing. And, oh, Dicko, Dicko wouldn't have killed these women. I'll help you, buddy. Yep. And then his wife talks him out of it at the end when it could be a slight inconvenience to their business needs. Yep. Michael Bates also is Sergeant Spearman, who we see routinely throughout the movie. Yeah, Sergeant Spearman is our lead detective's second. There's a scene where they're, they have these wonderful side scenes. The scenes where he is studiously studying his boss eat his lunch. He's just staring at it. He's like, you liking that lunch? It's like, yeah, we're Englishmen. We deserve three breakfasts a day. Yeah. Big English breakfast. And because the reoccurring gag about the inspector and his wife, his wife's taking a continental cooking class and is serving him undigestible 
fancy foods. Some crazy foods, yeah. And we go to them a few times, and what, what I described while we're watching, it's like they managed to stuff a Britcom in the middle of this Hitchcock film and just go back to this recurring gag about how he hates this food, but he's just far too polite to tell his wife, please stop cooking this. But he does tell her. like He tells her without times. telling yeah, her. Yeah. yeah. Like I, there's that comment that he says, I look forward to the day when we have real bread in the yeah, house yeah. again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and his wife is Vivian Merchant plays Mrs. Fox, Mrs. Oxford. So... But yeah, I, I I love those little little side scenes, especially them. It just it just adds a little extra something. It adds some atmosphere to it, because the main plot is good. But the main plot is we've seen things like this before. It's it's a standard serial killer plot, and it's just the, the the things that surround it. I mean, the, the the central performances are good, and the central story is good. But it needs that levity at the side to really bring the film together. Yeah, and like that scene in the back of the truck. Where, oh, that's a great one. Uh, where Robert Rusk has to get his pin out of the girl's hand. Yeah, yeah, so when he was strangling her, she grasped this pin with his initial on it. That he always has stuffed in his, or inserted into his tie. Yeah. But when he strangles the woman, he takes it out of his tie and puts it in his coat. And he realizes after he's dumped the body in this potato truck, which they had established earlier that he had had some excess potatoes that were being shipped back up north. And so he's like, I'll just dump it in the truck and they'll take the body up north. And once he realizes she still has my pen, he sneaks in and then the, the driver comes and takes off. And so he's in this confined space trying to pry the pen out of her rigor mortis, cold, dead hands and get out. And it's... It's a great scene. It's a long sequence. Yeah. It's had wonderful tension. It's darkly humorous because he's just like he's trying to wedge himself, and and it's like he he uses something else to try to pry the fingers, and it breaks. It gets the stuck knife. in her hand. Yeah. The knife. And yeah, it's just it's wonderful, and it's inventive, and it's fresh, and it is the film of a young man. Yeah. And this, I think, is the movie more than any the other that has led to my previous comment that if I could make one director immortal, it would be Alfred Hitchcock because Alfred Hitchcock was able to continue to be himself and change with the times at the same time in an almost seamless way. Uh, and this film is probably the greatest testament to that ability of his. A lot of people today could take lessons from Alfred, Hitch Alfred Hitchcock films. You don't have to force things I guess, you know, Michael Bay somebody who could yeah. learn from an Alfred Hitchcock movie. <laughs> and this film is not in a hurry, but it's not slow. No, it, it, it never feels slow in this there, movie. Yeah, I had my, my attention the whole time. Yeah. Like there, there, There's not a part of this film that doesn't work. Everything's necessary and everything's satisfying. And satisfying is the descriptor I would use for this film more than yeah. anything else. It's just yeah, enjoyable it's, to watch. It's a very strong film. This is the first time I've seen it. But I thoroughly enjoyed it, and, and I, this is one I'll come back to. Yeah. So I need to beef up my DVD collection of... I've got an Alfred Hitchcock collection, but I'm pretty positive this one's not in it. Yeah. So I'm going to have to like probably look into some sort of complete Alfred Hitchcock collection. Yeah, they're worth it, man. Yeah. If any director is, Hitchcock's super solid. So how would you rate this film? You know, it was almost like seeing it again for the first time. Yeah. It's been so long, and I I remembered that it was good, but I didn't remember it being this good. Yeah, I think this is going to be the hardest month of the theme months we've done in terms of ranking films. But I would give this film 
I'm, on, I'm teetering on the edge between three and a half and four stars. I think I'm going to hold back and give it three and a half. But I'm going to give it nine on the ten star scale. I'm going to give it the four on the four star scale, but really? I also am going to give it the, the nine on the ten star mm. scale. So, yeah, it's hard to imagine what could be better in this film. On that four star scale, what would I change I to make it any better? It's, on the ten star scale, probably the nudity is the one thing that holds it back. Mm. But yeah, this is a great film. One little thing that that I liked at the end, it's just occurring to me now, is that this guy. Richard was able to win over this entire floor worth of patients to help him drug. It's like that's that's an that's an entire sequence that we didn't see. Yeah. But I believe this guy could have pulled that off. Oh yeah. And won all of their their uh, loyalty and agreement and committing a basically a petty assault. Yeah. Did you catch? So it's traditional for Alfred Hitchcock to make a cameo in his films. Uh-huh. Did you catch where his cameo is? He's very early in the film. He's in the crowd of people watching the politician give his speech. Yeah. So they actually filmed a scene where it's his body floating in, in the river. And the intent was originally for that to be in the movie, but it, they just didn't feel like it worked. So yeah. it's, it's the trailer. Hmm. That's what they used as the trailer, oh, yeah. is his body floating. But yeah, so he makes his cameo. In and the, Hitchcock could do some very inventive trailers, too. Yeah. I mean, he's uh, almost more than anyone I can think of. He was an artist of the trailer, which actually leads me to a possible story. Yeah. You know, I hadn't planned this segue, but it's it's the perfect segue to a story uh, that I was reading in a magazine recently about a man named Alan Arkush. Alan Arkush is a director. He's made a few films. Probably his biggest known film is Caddyshack 2. <laughs> he worked mostly in television. He has over 250 television directorial credits to his name, everything from St. Elsewhere to Heroes. He did a number of TV movies, and he worked in the industry for, for a very long time. I think he's still working in it. He's in his early 70s. And in this interview, he tells a story about how he graduated from film school in New York in the early to mid-70s. And he had some friends that were working out in California for Roger Corman's New World Pictures. And they said, we always could use help in the trailer department. Come out here, and we'll get you a job. So uh, he says that uh, him and two other guys worked in the trailer department. And at this time... New World Pictures was releasing about a movie a week. So they had to make about a trailer a week, which was enough to keep three men busy full time because this is before you had all the technology to make that process easier. And so to make, a, to make a trailer, basically the way the process worked is first they would have to watch the movie, decide how they wanted to approach advertising the movie, determine which scenes that they wanted to put into the movie, order copies of, th- of that portion of the film made so that they could cut it up and assemble the trailer and Roger Corman was notoriously cheap so he's not going to pay to have this trailer printed in color until he knows for sure that he's going to use this trailer so they make a black and white copy and again Roger Corman is cheap he's not going to pay to record the audio until he knows he's going to use it so they would show Corman the black and white cut of the trailer they would stand at the side and they would read out loud <laughs> what the dialogue would be. And then Corman would yay or nay. Say, I don't need you to tweak this. Or that's good. Go ahead and print it in color. So they did this for a number of years. And every one of those three men, including uh, Joe Dante, went on to direct and to direct for Corman. And Arkish tells this story about he was asking Corman, you know, because the way he would work with his directors, especially with them, and he, he was pretty hands-off, but he was even more hands-off with these three. He said, basically, this is what you need to make a movie about. Here's your money. 
and I don't need to see anything until the movie's done. And he said, well, why do you trust us so much? That's an awful lot of responsibility to put in our hands when we're, you know, we're not, we're novice directors. So I'll tell you why. You guys have been making trailers for me for so long that you can't help but think how to sell the movie. So I know that whatever you do, you'll have in mind a way to sell it. So I trust you. Yeah. I found some interesting things in the trivia section on IMDb about this movie. Okay. One in particular, Alfred Hitchcock's daughter, Patricia Hitchcock, found this movie so disturbing that for many years she refused to let her kids see the movie. Oh, wow. Alfred Hitchcock, as many people know, he has a large personality. Mm. So while they were shooting this, the filming schedule allowed filming to begin at 8 a.m. and it had to finish at 6 p.m. each day on, on the lot. And while they were on location in Covent Garden in London, one day during filming, Hitchcock was in the middle of finishing a take when a union representative showed up to inform him it was 6.15 p.m. and that they had to stop filming. Hitchcock became furious and threatened to walk off the set and the film and make the film uh, back in Hollywood. After that, no more union re- representatives were ever allowed back on set. Anyways, yeah, this film's great. Yeah, highly recommend. Not for all audiences, obviously, but it I'd shows recommend this to most audiences. To most audiences, all except for younger children, pretty yeah. much. So, or at least that would be my recommendation. So, mm-hmm. any other thoughts? No, I think we we've, we've talked it up. Yeah. Well, I'm Rob, and I'm Nate, and this is Rob and Nate record a podcast. Have you seen anything about this Zack Snyder Justice League thing? I'm a little curious to see it because uh, I guess Zack Snyder's daughter like died while they were making the film. Oh, really? And so he had to step back and they brought in Josh Whedon to finish it up. And Snyder had very different ideas of what this movie was going to be than Whedon ended up having. And that Justice League movie is not very good. Yeah. And I guess it's like a four-hour thing. It's over four hours long. They spent an additional $70 million on this. They brought actors back For the to reshoots. film additional scenes. It, the 70, they spent $70 million on the reshoots. Not on like the Not edits, the, everything. Yeah. $70 million on reshoots. I kind of want to see it. It's going to be on HBO this yeah. weekend. I'll, I, we'll have to work We were out. talking about watching it, and then I told Melinda it was four hours long. <laughs> now I don't know if, if we're still planning to watch it Indeed. this weekend. So, yeah. I am curious. I'll probably watch it at some point, but yeah. We watched the original this weekend just to kind of re-familiarize ourselves with it. Did we, we, did we watch that too? No, I watched that at a company Christmas party. Oh, really? Yeah, they rented out a theater. And <laughs> the, you know, the, the younger kids mostly liked it. The Flash got a lot of laughs, but yeah. it's, it's, it's really not good. Yeah. Uh, especially all of the buildup that it had. I mean, it was supposed to be their Avengers, and they just did it too soon. Yeah. And it's just not it's just not very good. Fun stuff. Well So speaking of uh things that are in the streaming milieu, uh-huh. Murder Among the Mormons. Uh-huh. So Murder Among the Mormons is a, a TV a true crime thing that Netflix did, a three parter about the Mark Hoffman uh murders in the eighties. He was a uh Document stealer who was a forger and uh, was getting close to getting caught, so he planted some bombs to try to allay suspicion and to try to try to get away with it, which ultimately didn't work because he is still in prison. So because this came out, there's a lot of subsequent reinterest 
in this story and different materials you can find online and elsewhere. And there's a YouTube uh, channel called uh, Gospel Tangents. And they did an interview with a man named Brent Ashworth. And Brent Ashworth is a lawyer, or was a lawyer. He's, he's still, obviously, still alive. And he was really fascinated with documents. He was, he was a document dealer. It was kind of his side hustle. And he talks in this interview that he got interested in it when there was a fire at a family home when he was probably around 12. And one of the things they salvaged was a box full of belongings of his late grandmother. And he sorted through that and found that there was seven, eight, nine, six, something, a number of letters between her and Heber J. Grant, who was the president of the LDS Church in 1918 to 19, 1919 to 1945. And he was just fascinated by this, and he got it in his mind that he wanted to own documents written on by every president of the LDS Church, and, and other documents as well. And so that's how he got to know Mark Hoffman, because of, of this document trading. But Mark Hoffman was not the only serial killer he knew. He went to law school at the University of Utah. One of his teachers decided that he would seat all the students alphabetically. So Brent Ashworth sat next to Ted Bundy. Wow. And he said in the interview, you know, I was usually really good with not losing textbooks. Textbooks, especially law textbooks at, at this time, they're expensive. It, it stinks to lose them because you have to outlay a lot of money. And I freaking lost my textbook to this class. And so I like to blame Ted Bundy because he's got worse things on his plate. He can, he can take the theft of my, my textbook yeah. and it could not be on me. Yeah. You know, one of the things, um, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but Netflix produces a podcast. I believe it's called You Can't Make This Up. And it's they interview the directors of a bunch of the Netflix films. Mm-hmm. And they were talking to the the producers of this film, the the two guys that did main two guys that did it, mm-hmm. um, and they were talking about Alvin Rust, the the rare coin dealer. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're aware of this, but in addition to having forgiven Mark Hoffman for, you know, basically ripping him off, he made efforts to go out and purchase back the forgeries that Mark Hoffman had sold to mm-hmm. others. Yeah. And out of his own pocket, reimbursed people for the wow. forgeries they they paid Mark it's Hoffman impressive. for, at least the ones that he was involved in Directly, the sales in. Yeah. yeah, and you know, so in addition to having directly lost, I believe they said in the film it was like five hundred thousand yeah. dollars due to this deal with Mark Hoffman, he lost more money purchasing back the forgeries. Yeah, and you so, know, uh, obviously, it, not to justify this, or it wouldn't, the scales would not balance fiscally but the mark hoffman forgeries there's now a market for the forgeries oh yeah so that people who collect mark hoffman forgeries yeah yeah because he did it as good or better than anyone else ever did it yeah turns out we had i had some familial connections to that that i wasn't aware of oh yeah the christensen guy did a lot of work with one of my uncles oh or my uncle did a lot of work for mr christensen actually was at the the one where the house where the wife got uh, oh, yeah. killed, mm-hmm. he was at their home doing work the week before. Oh wow! You know, and things like that. And he was in Mister Christensen's office, if I remember correctly, just a day or two before the bombing. So, wow. so yeah, and it was an interesting series. But yeah, maybe we'll have to later on record an episode about that. But I think we may have talked about it as much as we might talk about. <laughs> so yeah, 
interesting outtakes that have nothing to do with the movie we just Indeed. talked about. Well, so, murder. Yeah.